0: Despite being a born and true American, I am deeply skeptical of the concept of rights. That is R-I-G-H-T-S, not R-I-T-E-S, which we have plenty of in the church. Rights. For one thing, rights do not have a satisfactory philosophical definition there is absolutely no agreement on what they are, where they come from, and what constitutes the definitive list of rights. Instead, the notion of rights seems to be a stand-in for the things that we think we deserve. But why we deserve those things and whose responsibility it is to provide them is, again, completely undefined. Far more importantly, though, rights do not seem to accord with Christian values or practices. A focus on rights always seems to devolve into a focus on myself and what I deserve. They become a temptation to selfishness, a temptation directly contrary to the fundamental selflessness of Christianity. Instead, the more ancient notion of justice seems to be the more Christian, that is, selfless, approach to the same topics. Justice asks, what do I owe others? While rights ask, what is owed to me? Understanding this distinction is the only way we can begin to approach our gospel today. If we think in terms of rights, we will reject Jesus entirely. If a person strikes me, of course I have the right to strike them back. If a person steals from me, of course I have the right to take back my stuff and punish them for the theft. If someone hates me, of course I have the right to hate them. If they curse me, of course I have the right to curse them. If they mistreat me, of course I have the right to mistreat them. Jesus and rights are diametrically opposed here. But if we think in terms of justice, there might be a way to reconcile the two. Granted, all of these offenders have themselves failed to act with justice. But we don't have control over them. We only have control over our own responses. To that end, what do I owe to the person who hates me or curses me or mistreats me? What do I owe to the person who strikes me or robs from me? The ancient pagan philosophers said justice is perfect fairness without leniency or excess. They said we are required to do good to those who do good to us, certainly, but that we are also obliged to do harm to those who harm us. They would say we must strike those who strike us. Otherwise, if consequences are not proportional to crimes, society will descend into corruption or chaos. And yet, Jesus changes things. He acknowledges the natural justice of doing good to those who do good to us. But he contends that we ought not to harm those who harm us. That is, he requires that his followers show mercy. It looks like Jesus is deviating from justice. Is that true? Not quite. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That's a statement of justice. We have been shown incredible mercy insofar as Jesus died for us, even though we were still sinners and did not deserve it. If we have been shown mercy, then justice requires that we show mercy in return. But since God needs nothing from us, and God has not sinned against us, we cannot show that mercy to him. So he asks that we reflect that mercy to others instead. In other words, we are caught between two conflicting forms of justice. Natural justice requires that we harm those who harm us. Supernatural justice requires that we show mercy just as we ourselves have been shown mercy. But because the mercy shown to us by God is infinitely greater than the harm done to us by human beings... Mercy always wins out for the Christian. If we do not show mercy to others, which is to say if we choose natural justice over supernatural justice, then we are essentially rejecting the mercy shown to us. Notice, of course, that this is more than courtroom mercy, where we simply do less harm to someone who has harmed us. God showed us a different kind of mercy. He showed us merciful love, meaning that not only did he not harm us, but he did incredibly generous things for us. This is what Jesus requires of a Christian, that we respond to harm with generosity and love, just as God himself responded to sin with the infinite generosity and love of the cross. In my estimation, love your enemies and do good to them is the most difficult of all of the teachings of Jesus. And we all struggle with it. I hear about it all the time in the confessional, the unwillingness or inability to forgive, the desire to have revenge, the unending cycle of returning harm for harm. But we have to take this teaching of Jesus deadly seriously. We must pray for our enemies. We must bless those who curse us. We must do good to those who harm us. Justice demands it. It is not optional. But to really drive this point home, to show us just how difficult this teaching of Jesus is, I'd like to connect it to two rather controversial teachings of the Church that is, the teachings on the death penalty and nuclear weapons. One way to generalize the gospel today is to say that Jesus forbids Christians to seek revenge. We are never allowed to act out of a desire to return harm for harm. Never. The way we respond to something, including a grave sin against us, can never be motivated by hatred or anger. Never. Instead, what we owe the person who has sinned against us is the same love that God has shown us. Every Christian action is motivated by this love, remembering, of course, that love is not a feeling, but a choice for the good of the other. For example, the one instance in which Christianity allows the taking of human life is in the defense of the innocent. And yet, even in this case, the goal is never to harm the aggressor, a harm that we would avoid if there were a different way to defend the innocent. The goal is always and only to do the best possible for everyone involved, and sometimes, tragically, defending the innocent requires harming someone. But our goal is never to harm, it's to protect. Consider, then, the death penalty. If Christianity can only justify the taking of life in the defense of the innocent, in the defense of innocent life, then the only instance in which the death penalty is justified is if there is a person whose very existence threatens innocent life. But these conditions no longer really exist in any country with maximum security prisons. Then what remains the purpose of the death penalty? In so many cases, particularly when you see it put up for a vote in the different TV advertisements, it seems to exist so that families of victims can be given a feeling of justice. But that makes the death penalty nothing more than state-sponsored revenge. But the Lord forbids Christians to seek revenge. Even thinking of the death penalty as a deterrent is really just saying that we are going to communicate to potential criminals that if they kill people, we will kill them back. But again, this is vengeance, which the Lord forbids. So why keep the death penalty on the books at all? The horrifying implication truly horrifying implication of being Christian is that if someone kills your loved one, you are not allowed to kill them back because God's mercy, the mercy that you received, is greater even than murder. Now that we are contemplating another Cold War with Russia, we may need to consider nuclear weapons again something the U.S. bishops wrote about in the 1980s at the end of the First Cold War, and something that the Archbishop of Santa Fe just published a new reflection on this year. What is our motivation for maintaining a massive stockpile of weapons, the only conceivable purpose of which is to indiscriminately wipe out major population centers? These aren't tactical nukes, something that might take out a military base. These are city-destroying weapons. We know that Catholic belief only allows for wars of self-defense, so we know we cannot justify these weapons on offensive grounds. That is, we can never morally strike first. Given that, our country says that we maintain these weapons for deterrence, for mutually assured destruction, to let other countries know that if they kill our people, we will kill their people back. But again... What is this attitude? It is vengeance which the Lord forbids to Christians. If that is the case, if we cannot strike first, and we cannot strike in retribution, why keep the weapons around at all? Again, the horrifying, truly horrifying implication of being Christian is that if someone nukes our cities... Our Lord tells us not to nuke them back, because his mercy is greater even than a nuclear attack. My friends, I am not a huge proponent of political advocacy from the pulpit, and this is not what this is. It would be hard to vote against the death penalty and nuclear weapons anyway without also voting for abortion and gender confusion. So if we're going to take any action on this, it's going to be a letter campaign, and those aren't particularly effective. Instead, I bring up these two teachings of the Church because they are so obviously extreme in our minds. The idea that we would not retaliate in like manner— against a family murder or a nuclear attack is ludicrous. It's crazy. It's insane. It's beyond the pale. But Christianity is also ludicrous. Christianity is truly radical. Christianity demands that you think like God, not like the world. And if Christians are forbidden from seeking vengeance in such extreme cases as murder or nuclear war, then how seriously do you think Jesus takes our responsibility to forgive the people in our lives? How seriously do you think Jesus takes our responsibility to forgive our parents, our siblings, or our spouses who have betrayed us? If we do not forgive, pray for, and bless those who have harmed us, if we do not in justice pay forward God's infinitely merciful love, then we are rejecting his merciful love. And if we reject his merciful love, then we reject our salvation.